is back. The Drool King Lotor has returned with a dark energy that can destroy the galaxy. Our only hope? The Voltron Force, a team of five heroic pilots that control five awesome robot lions. When Lotor's monstrous robot beasts attack, the lions come together to form Voltron, defender of the universe. Welcome, Voltron fans. This is Mark Morell, your host for Let's Voltron, the official Voltron podcast. We're here for another exciting episode of Let's Voltron, and I have to have my co-host on, Greg Tyler. Welcome, Greg. Mark, it's great to see you again, and uh, great to be back on the podcast for our uh, listeners and viewers across the universe. We've got a couple more folks we're going to bring on. Yes, this is a very special episode because we have one of the writers of the actual Voltron Force episode that we're going to review in this podcast. That is awesome. And uh, we have a special returning guest who uh, actually helped us get in touch with our with our writer guest uh, today. So uh, let's go ahead and welcome back Shannon Weir. Glad to be back, guys, as always. Yeah, Hi, so Shannon. Thank yeah, hey. thank you. Thank you for getting in touch with our next guest. Uh, Shannon, would you like to introduce our next guest? Absolutely. Everybody, um, today we have the writer of several episodes of Voltron Force, Adam Beechen. Now, I originally met Adam when I was working on my textbook, or actually after my textbook, uh, Gardner's Guide to Writing and Producing Animation, came out. In conjunction with that, book, I was doing a series of panels at various conventions, one of which I was set up to do was WonderCon in San Francisco. The problem was that most of the people that had done interviews for the book were not going to be at WonderCon. One of the few that had was Greg Weissman. And so then I had to start asking around, figuring out who was going to be there that could talk about the subject matter of animation writing and production at WonderCon. And I have, my emails don't go back that far to know where I got the recommend anymore. But one of the names that was given to me was Adams. And that's how I first got in touch with him. And now I'm gonna throw over to Adam so he can introduce himself to you. Thank you. Hey everybody, thanks for having me on, I appreciate it. Oh, well, we're glad to have you here. Thank you. And thank you again, Shannon, for uh, uh, getting us in touch with you. So, uh, Adam, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm, uh, I'm hanging in there and staying busy in the early stages of 2022. Uh, right. Just trying to, trying to keep macaroni and cheese on the table. <laughs> and uh, what was it like to, uh, to hear, you know, what is it now? Uh, 10, 11, 12 years after the fact that uh, uh, some folks wanted to chat with you about a couple TV scripts that you've written. Well, I'm super excited. I have very fond memories of working on the show. Um, I don't remember a lot of the particular individual conversations I had, but I've always been a fan of Voltron. So I know that uh, uh, I, I was enthused and I'm still enthused at being a part of Voltron's history. Uh, it was a, a great privilege to work on the show. Well, great. Cool. So can you get us started on how you even got into writing in the first place? Sure. Um, I was born in a log cabin. And no, um, I went to graduate school for screenwriting and uh, moved out here with the idea that I would give it a couple of years. And if I could make any forward progress, I would stick around. If not, then I would 
go back home with my tail between my legs. And uh, luckily it's worked out. About a year and a half after I moved out to Los Angeles, uh, I was invited to write a, uh, a script, an early script for the series, The Wild Thornberries, um, the very first season. And that led to a staff gig, which was incredibly fortunate. Uh, and I worked on that show for a couple of seasons. And really everything has come out of that. Um, I didn't expect to get into animation. I came out here to write primetime drama. Mm. Uh, and my actual first, first job out here was as a staff writer on an Aaron Spelling primetime soap opera called Savannah, which oh, ran wow. for about a season and a half. And if anybody remembers that, you're the only ones. And, <laughs> Wikipedia uh, remembered. <laughs> there you go. And um, that show was almost immediately canceled when I became a staff writer. So luckily animation came along and saved the day. Uh, and uh, I've written for everything from Rugrats and other preschool shows all the way to primetime shows like MacGyver um, and just about everything in between. Teen Titans, X-Men, uh, Jackie Chan, uh, The Littlest Pet Shop, uh, Tots, Stinky and Dirty Show, um, all kinds of stuff. So I've been really fortunate to bounce around a lot in animation and also working in comic books. Yeah, so, so your animation experience predates the start of your comic book experience. Is that right? That is true. Yeah. Um, my fandom of comics predates my fandom of animation, but uh, <laughs> uh, it wound up working in both, which has been great. So what, out of all of your comic books, which one are you most proud of? Um, I wrote a graphic novel called Hench uh, that came out in 2004. Um, that's an original story, cre characters created by me and by the artist Manny Bello. Um, I did a sequel to that in 2012 with an artist named Ethan Beavers. Uh, I'm very proud of, of that book in particular because it is something that uh, was an original concept uh, that came from us. As far as my mainstream comic book work, uh, I'm really proud of having brought Batman Beyond back to the DC mainstream or really into the main DC mainstream for the first time. Uh, and now Batman Beyond is a huge going concern for the publisher. So uh, I'm really happy to have been a part of that at the, at the beginning of this stage of its life. Now, do you, do you have a preference for, and I mean, with uh, it's it's very clear why you would love your having your original work published with your original characters and premises and all that. But um, do you have a preference for, you know, completely original material versus working with, uh, with other people's toys, if you know what I mean, uh, like I Batman and things of that sort? Um, you know, I rarely have an original idea and you can cut it right there and that will be the meme if you want. Um, I rarely have an original idea that uh, I feel that I can do justice to. Uh, it always comes out better in my head than it does on the page. So I'm really comfortable working with other people's characters and other people's concepts. I love sort of having the sandbox in place around me and it's up to me to figure out how to put all the toys together in a way that makes something entertaining. Um, it's always fun to go on to a new show where you don't really know the parameters and research the show, study the show, and then try and do something that's in the voice of the show. I really enjoy that process. And uh, Shannon, when, uh, when you uh, had, had met Adam at WonderCon, um, what kinds do you remember? I mean, this is, this is you know, going back a little while. Um, About 15 years. <laughs> okay, that, that's yeah, a little so while. Yeah. So, so what were some of uh, what were some of the topics that were discussed at the panel? Do either of you remember the Adam? Do you remember that particular WonderCon uh, uh, panel? Or I do not. I remember. I remember that I met Shannon at a convention. I wasn't sure if it was San Diego or at WonderCon. Um, and I 
think that was before maybe your book. I think we were introduced uh, by a, a fellow animation writer. Um, I don't recall exactly what, the, what, what we talked about on the panel, but maybe you do. Uh, basically the template that I was using at all of the various conventions was thinking of the major points throughout the production process that the book would cover to give people a sample of, well, here's what my book walks through. Now here's four people who live and work that. And it was you and Greg Weissman, Stan Berkowitz, who I already knew, but had not been involved with the book. And there was another person who I met for the first time that was a part of that panel. It was the first time I met Dwayne McDuffie. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the four of you for half of you being people I'd never met prior to that did it did an amazing job for me. <laughs> I hope I just sat back and let them talk because they're all much more knowledgeable and engaging. I have a feeling we may have been introduced by Stan because I knew Stan as well. And Stan and I had the same agents for a while. That's, that seems like the most likely route. Yeah. 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 Now you've, you've got this illustrious career in both animation and in comics. And we asked you what you're, uh, what you're most proud of when it comes to comics, but what are you most proud of with your animation TV? Mm. Um, I had the chance to develop from scratch a preschool cartoon for, uh, for the hub and for Hasbro called The Adventures of Chuck and Friends. And it was a preschool cartoon involving trucks and um, just getting a chance to be involved with that process from the very beginning all the way through to the show first airing was, was tremendous for me. And working with the folks at Hasbro uh, was a, a great, the folks with the animation studio up in Canada they were terrific. It was a very collaborative atmosphere. I felt like um, I was listened to. I felt like my ideas had some value. Uh, I felt like uh, we took input from a lot of different sources and made a show that really worked. I'm really proud of that. Um, as far as working on stuff that, uh, that was created and developed by other people, uh, I'm awfully fond of having worked on the Teen Titans. Mm -hmm. um, I had a really good experience with that. I met one of my really good friends on that show who's a, one of the story editors, David Slack. Actually, he was the story editor. Um, actually, I met him on Jackie Chan. I take it back. I worked with David on Jackie Chan. Yeah, I was so going to say back. you would have gone way back because I remember, go I back remember even David further. Slack as Dwayne Capizzi's assistant back when I, yeah. when I was working on Jumanji and Extreme Ghostbusters. Yeah, that's when I met David as well. He was just mm -hmm. coming off of being an assistant to being a story editor. Um, and we're still pals today. Uh, he helped me get the gig on MacGyver writing a freelance episode, which was a lot of fun. Um, so I have really fond memories of working on Teen Titans, but I have good memories of working on just about every show that I worked on. Okay. And staff writer versus freelance, which is better? Wow. Um, <laughs> depends on how much you like to eat every day. Um, <clears throat> um, you know, being a staff writer is great for the stability. Uh, and for the chance to really sink your teeth into a show and get to know it top to bottom and help other writers as they come aboard in freelance capacities, uh, get to know and understand the show. Uh, but the joy of freelancing is that you don't spend too much time in any one place. You're able to bounce around and get a lot of variety going in your career um, if you're lucky enough to do that. And uh, uh, I have, uh, you know, I have a lot of fun doing both. Okay. I've I've noticed that across comics, uh, you know, this sort of speaks to the freelance thing where you move from 
uh, show to show or book to book. Um, you've worked on a lot of long-lived properties, uh, DC characters, Batman, uh, the Ninja Turtles, uh, uh, so many, uh, Scooby-Doo, I see, and Tom and Jerry, Voltron, yep. um, things that have been around a while, Transformers, MacGyver, of course, dating back to the 80s original <laughs> show. Um, when you research for these different projects, do you, do you find that you gravitate toward any type of project? For example... Uh, a project that may have originated uh, many years ago that you have some familiarity with, or perhaps a newer project, something that wasn't around for all that long. Do you, do you have a preference or, or are they all equally interesting? Well, working on, on legacy properties really satisfies the fanboy in me. Uh, you know, I grew up reading superhero comics um, and uh, always wanted to be involved in comics in some way or involved with those characters. So getting a chance to write, you know, anything that is sort of superhero or action related uh, is really satisfying for me. Um, so I enjoy that probably a little more, uh, but I'm happy to write. I find stuff that, that, that can sink my teeth into in writing for all ages, but I probably gravitate more towards the action comedy stuff than I do, uh, you know, say, uh, you know, uh, terrible gothic soap opera drama. <laughs> So no dark shadows for you? You know, I, I would have to do a lot of research. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, of course, we, we also want to talk to you about Voltron. Sure. Okay. So how exactly did you get involved in Voltron Force, which came out in 2011, but the writing was done in 2010? Right. Uh, that's a good question. Um, and I probably should have called my agents to find out because I imagine they hooked me up with Todd Garfield. Okay. Um, I don't think I hadn't met Todd to that point. So, um, you know, it was a, a first time kind of experience for both of us. I was a new freelancer working on the show. The show was up and running. Uh, there were already a number of scripts that had been done. Um, so I was coming on board in the middle. And I know that Todd and I uh, uh, had lunch uh, in Culver City. Uh, and talked over the story that I was going to be working on. I believe the premise was already in place. Mm -hmm. um, and so my job was to come in and, and flesh that out into an outline. Uh, and so we had a good conversation about that, had kicked around some ideas, and then I went off to write the outline. So uh, coming into Voltron Force, uh, there's sequencing of episodes where you might be focused on Sky Marshall Wade, or you might be focused on Lotor. Right. And you got lucky enough to be focused on Lotor. A little bit. <laughs> A little so bit. Um, did, did the, the characters, I mean, were you well aware of who these characters were and what Voltron was and all that kind of stuff before you jumped in? Oh, yeah. I was a, a big fan of Voltron when I was in, oh, my gosh, I'm going to date myself now, when I was in, uh, when I was in high school. Uh, and it was came out of the tradition of Battle of the Planets and Robotech and all that stuff. All of that stuff I was very much a fan of and, and still am. So I was quite into Voltron. Uh, so I knew the, the concept pretty well. I knew the, the setting pretty well. Um, you know, the characters change a little bit from series to series, uh, mm -hmm. whether they're legacy characters or they're brand new. Uh, so I had to do a little bit of studying for that to get to know them. I remember that a big focus for the episode for Predator Robeast was they really wanted to focus on the cadets. Um, so my main mission was to try and, and work in their voice as much as possible. Mm -hmm. 
And another thing about this particular episode is there was some stuff that had happened in previous episodes that led up to this right? as, as to how Mayhawks knew where the dens of the lions were. Right. And how did they describe that to you? You know, that, that the, all this stuff happened before your episode. I imagine that I had seen um, scripts for the previous episodes in whatever stage of production that they were in. Uh, I had all the scripts for the season to that point. And then, mm. you know, nine and 10, I think my script was the 11th uh, mm-hmm. of the season. I think yep. nine and 10 probably weren't finished yet. Nine was probably at first or second draft and 10 was probably at outline. So I knew where the, the, the story had been and I knew what it was pointing towards. Um, you know, and it was just a matter of, of asking some questions of my own if I didn't know exactly how the, the dens were situated and how that might play physically on the screen. But um, it wasn't too hard to get that information and to, and to plug it in. Um, I'll, I'll tell you one, one small thing. This is kind of fun, I think. Uh, there's a parallel between this episode and my comic writing career. I wrote a two-part story for Robin, the character of Robin. Uh, in which uh, a bad guy combines multiple animals into one giant beast called the Apocalypse Beast that's supposed to take down, you know, and destroy the uh, Gotham City and then the the Earth. Uh, So this was um, kind of a a little bit familiar to me uh, (laughs) uh, in coming to write this story. Uh, So that that was kind of fun. I, in fact, I think I used some of the same kinds of imagery in this episode as I did in the comic, I know that they're in the cold open of this episode, you get shots of the glowing eyes of the, the different row beasts. And that was the first page of the Robin comic was seeing the individual animals with eyes glowing. So you knew something mystical and magical was gonna happen. It was, wow. it, it was pretty cool because those, those eyes were glowing. Yeah. And then as soon as they locked in on the den of the lion, then they changed to the lion color. Right. That was so uh, cool. And it, that may have been a note from Todd to me because in early drafts, all of the, the eyes glowed the same color. Mm-hmm. It went from basically red to green, like, yep, we're locked on, green is go. And I think that it must've been Todd's idea to make that match up with the individual colors of the lions, which was a great choice. Right. So, so with the continuity of, of past events, from events from past episodes leading into one that you write, whether it's for Voltron Force or any other show, I know. Yeah. I, I mean, these days television seems to be much more uh, arc-driven, you know, the, and with the continuous storyline rather than you know one and done kind of a of a tale, a self-contained right. episode. Um, have you found overall, whether whether through Voltron Force or any of your experiences, that it's kind of is it is it challenging to get into the mix of a story that you haven't necessarily had a lot of immersion into when you uh, write an episode? It's a good challenge um, because I like that part of it. I like feeling like I'm part of the team. I like feeling like I'm in on the planning of how the season's going to play out, even if I'm just freelancing and I can add one or two things here and there. Uh, the research is is just plain fun because I get to read scripts and there's you know not a lot that's more fun than getting a chance to read a script that's going to be produced that hasn't been produced yet. You feel very sort of on the inside. Um, so it's not a problem for me. I, I, I dig it. Uh, I think it's a constant battle between studios and networks and the creative team uh, as to whether or not, or as to how serialized to make a show. Uh, there, at least there used to be before binging became a thing. Um, there used to be a lot of worry that there weren't jumping on points for new viewers. Uh, and so 
you wanted to have, you know, four or five bottle episodes, standalone episodes uh, in each season so that viewers could come in and get a sense of what was going on. Uh, that has shifted, I think, a lot towards continuity-based uh, content, uh, for better or for worse. And I think it's for the better uh, because you can tell that big story that you want to tell without the interruptions of standalone stories um, and keep everything moving smoothly as you go through the whole season. A lot of this, I remember tiny bits of your early career with some of the stuff that came out at the panel. That was that was something I did recognize, but a lot of this was new to me. Mm. So most of the things I would have asked, I have heard, <laughs> and and it's cool. And but at the same time, when you were some of the other stuff you were telling, like you were when David Slack came up, and all of a sudden. You know, I'm making those connections back in, right. in my own career. There's and there's some fun with that, but I just like to get right in the episode. I'm fine with that. Sure. So I did want to ask you, uh, from the first time that you met Todd to talk about this, to the time that you had your first draft written, how long is that period? Uh, I should be able to tell you that, shouldn't I? Um, it was to first draft. It wasn't that long. It was probably a month, maybe okay. a little more. Um, and most of that time was taken up with probably waiting for notes to come mm -hmm. back. Um, the actual writing process goes pretty fast at those stages. Uh, Todd, I'm sure, had his notes and had to turn, up, turn those around so that he could turn something into the studio. He did his own pass. And then it's a matter of waiting for everybody to come back with their notes. I don't remember exactly how many different parties had to give notes on a Voltron script. I imagine it was a lot. Um, <laughs> and you, you want to get all of those in place before you make any changes to the script whatsoever, because if another person comes in with more notes, then you got to start all over again. And that's happened to be plenty of times. So, okay. um, you know, one of the, one of the, the tough parts about this job is that it's, you can't control the people who are giving you notes. Right. Ideally, you would only get notes from one person and that person would collect all the notes before giving it to you. Uh, and there are shows where that has happened and there are shows where that doesn't happen just because of the nature of the other parties you're dealing with. Um, and so you're sort of scrambling all the time to put notes together. I don't remember any of that on this show. I remember getting all the notes from Todd at once and it was a very smooth process. Right. This, this show has the distinction out of all the Voltron shows of not having a full toy line associated with it, which we were kind of... We, we were really bummed about. <laughs> right? I mean, who wouldn't want a Voltron from this show? Right. I see the lions as toys from this show. So yeah, cool. as, you, as you can see behind me, I have a fair number of Voltron toys of various eras. And um, I yeah, notice I, that. that's a big gap in the collection. The, and as you'll notice, I have none. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed that too. But, so, but, hello? Uh, but I, I have a feeling your your uh, your environment there is a lot more organized than mine. So, <laughs> oh, you, you may be surprised, my friend. <laughs> but uh, did you have any of the original collectibles from back in the '80s show? I did not. I had some um, Battle of the Planet stuff, mm -hmm. and I had the the definitive guide to Robotech book uh, oh. that had episode summaries of all the different series and and you know schematics and all that stuff. I still have it. Uh, wow. and looked through that pretty frequently, but I didn't have the Voltron stuff. I think that by the time I got to Voltron or Voltron got to me, I was maybe more interested in collecting comics than I was in collecting figures. Yeah. Uh, comics were a little easier to store. 
Um, and I didn't have a whole lot of room, as I recall, my childhood room for a lot of uh, a lot of figures. Well, I, I can totally relate to that because you were talking about dating yourself. I was in junior high when the show came out. I do have some stuff, but I think that's part of that is because I have a sister who's nearly three years younger than I am. Uh-huh. And so that was kind of the drive that my sister, who was also very much into the show, wanted to do more of the playing and in turn play with me. So, right. Otherwise, I don't think I would have either. Yeah. I think it just caught me at a, at a, an age where I was more interested in focusing on one kind of collecting. Okay. Yeah. I, I wish I had that focus today. <laughs> <laughs> so did we want to dive into Predator Robies then? Yes. Yes. So we, we want to talk about Predator Robies. So uh, one of the things that we had talked about even prior to this, this show, uh, we had talked about the fact that there's, there's five animals that are coming together to form one giant Robies by the end of this. Uh, the snake, uh, in the original initial draft, uh, we had heard from John Delaney at one point that maybe the snake was supposed to be a scorpion originally. And mm. we, we just wanted to clear that up because it's out there on the, uh, the Voltron wiki. And we want to make sure uh, we talk to the actual writer about it. Uh, you know, I don't recall any specific discussion about that. I did notice reading back through the script that at one point, one of the arms of the predator robeast is described as being a scorpion tail. Um, or maybe the tail itself is described as a scorpion tail. I can't mm-hmm. recall. But uh, uh, I don't know why that choice was made and why that change was made. Um, maybe it's that there's an audio component to a, a snake robeast that there wouldn't be to a scorpion uh, robeast. Uh, and that makes things a little more exciting and energetic on the screen. Um, so I don't know the nuts and bolts of why that change was made, but I think the story still works regardless. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. And it's still a, a very uh, ominous uh, creature when you see it all together in, in the Roby's form. I tell you what, it's an ominous episode. Yeah. The whole thing is ominous. There's an air of doom that, that hangs over this episode that something big is coming that our heroes don't know really much about. Um, I was kind of stunned by how you don't see a lot of, of single episodes that end on as much of a cliffhanger as this, of your characters getting their butts whooped yep. and not knowing the first thing about how to defeat their enemy. It's, I think it's a pretty cool episode. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think it, it is, if it's rivaled by any other episode of Voltron Force, I would say it's probably the, uh, the uh, penultimate episode right before the big battle at the very, very end of the season, which wound up being the end of the show itself, mm. um, where uh, uh, the Mayhawks character had activated the, basically there's a, on the planet Doom, the castle uh, it has been, by the end of the season, has been made into a gigantic row beast of itself. Right. And it goes directly to Earth and attacks Earth. And right. uh, that's about the only one that I can think of that would, would compare to this at all. But this one I- is, is intense from start to finish. It really is. And I know that the castle was being constructed in the second episode that I wrote for the show and it hadn't been quite finished yet. So that creeping shadow really played out over a long period of time. It's a tough thing to do uh, in an animation season, but I think it, it came out really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and like you had said, uh, the, 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 what do you call that? The cold start or what? what, if, what the cold, sorry, the cold open. It's the cold scene open. before before yeah. the credits or before the main titles. Right. You yeah. said the, in the cold open, what we see is, is 
we are introduced to all these these animals and of course they're they're robot animals right right mm -hmm. so you get to see the wolf first right and it's its eyes glow and then it it changes to green when it's when it finds uh green lion's den right and then we go to uh yellow lion's cave and this time it's a snake and then we go to blue lion's cave underwater and it's it's a shark this time and then we go to the pool of lava or around all the lava pits and everything and it's another cave for red lion and this time it's like a minotaur robeast yep and and then uh we go over the castle of lions and there's actually a dragon watching over the castle of lions and the, the dragon pinpoints where black lion is right yeah and, and you don't know where they came from you don't know who created them you don't know what their mission is you don't know if they're on our side or not on our side um that's the goal of a really of a cold open is to hook the viewer in and make you want to come back after the opening credits to see what this is all about it was a pretty yeah. cool structure yeah. It's very intense. The, the, the five robeasts show up, find the five dens, and then Lotor talks about being bored out of his mind, and Mayhawk says, you're about to be entertained, and yeah, you might get your revenge too, and, and that's just a, that's such a great teaser. Yeah, and even Lotor doesn't know what's going on, mm -mm. Uh, which is kind of cool. He's just sort of set up to have fun, but Lotor is the, uh, sorry, Mayhawk holds all the cards initially in this episode, which he's yeah. really enjoying. <laughs> But uh, the, the key thing here is, is the information that Mayhawk's got came from a previous episode where he had actually captured Vince and tapped into his brain and everything and found out a lot about, you know, how Voltron was formed, uh, you know, the history of Voltron mm -hmm. and the locations of the lion's dens. Right. Yeah, the, the den locations, I think, came from that. Uh, there was an episode where... Uh, there was this robeast, this high-speed robeast that was basically barreling through different areas around the planet, uh, trying to find the dens. And it was yep. ambiguous at the end whether uh, whether they had been found. But uh, this episode yeah, definitely that was, shows that they had. Yeah, that was Flashform Go. Yeah, episode yeah. Flashform Go, right? Mm -hmm. So, and the and the cool part is is that Flashform Go is used in this episode. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so then we get and we find out what's what's going on here. One of the cool things is, is you know, when the when the show opens, they're showing the credits, right? The opening credits. Your name, at the time that your name shows up, it's right where Daniel is in this chair, and he's doing the castle defenses, and uh, there's some kind of a. a I guess a, a, a droid or something and he shoots the droid and it explodes and it's right where your name is. Yes. That's in my contract. <laughs> um, my name only appears on screen during massive explosions. Yes. Um, that was cool. And, thank you. Uh, no, I, yeah, it's just a, <laughs> a lucky twist that that happened. Uh, but it's certainly fun. It, it sort of helps viewers remember the name, I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, yeah, so uh, the, the cadets are basically learning how to do castle defense. Yeah, so, and we're so, seeing a lot of the technology that they're using. 
Uh, we're seeing them mess up. We're seeing them think outside the box uh, and use the defenses in ways that even the main team hadn't really thought of. Um, they're showing their value uh, and what they can bring to the team that maybe the main characters haven't brought previously. So they're going to show themselves to be valuable additions. And, and what I like about this is each of them shows the, in their own way how they handle the castle defenses successfully. Yeah. But they do mention that taking tips from the, the veteran Voltron Force members is what helped them get to that. Yeah, particularly Hunk, I think, gives them a lot of advice uh, as far as how to use the, the different equipment and Pidge as well. Um, and they're, you know, they're listening. They're, they're able to listen, they're willing to listen to their elders. Uh, and uh, they're not, you know, just thinking outside the box and not just going off the reservation every chance they get. They want to be good at what they're going to do. I was going to say, part of what I really like about this first act where Vince is act asking all these questions about how to manipulate a force field in various ways, those are the kinds of things that that some viewers and fans of shows like to talk about, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think of like Star Trek. Why don't they use warp drive as a weapon? You know, or, you know, and all the different weird sure. ways to deal with all that stuff and different ways to use the force and Star Wars and all that. So uh, I, I really like the way that Vince not only is doing something that contributes to the actual story, but he asks a lot of questions that I think a lot of fans would tend to ask, too. He, he's a geek. He is way into right. this stuff. Uh, he if this was if he was watching a show about this, he'd be way into the show and have all the figures behind it. Um, he wants to know everything there is to know about all this equipment and what he can do with it. And he's excited for the opportunity to play with it all. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that we're seeing is, is a, more of a development of the cadets as we go along in each of these episodes. And part of the development that we're seeing now is that they are willing to take direction from the, the older members mm -hmm. and they're willing to put that into you know, practice. Mm -hmm. And what they used to be like is, uh, why do I have to do this? Or, you know, why should I listen to you and all that kind of stuff? And you see the respect has grown has. between the cadets and the other members. But it's not fully there yet. Right. Because there's still two of the cadets that are more anxious to get outside and get onto their vehicles that they've been building. Yes. Uh, so they'll, they'll, they're okay with the lesson part of the day for a certain amount of time. But after <laughs> that, they need to get out and get out and have fun and run around and do whatever else they're going to do. Right. Right. And that that's when it comes to what Greg was saying about Vince is Vince is more interested in asking all kinds of things about how these castle defenses work than going out with the other two. Right. Right. He's the kid who stays in shop class late. <laughs> so, um, so after they, uh, after uh, Daniel and Larmina leave, Actually, I'd like to bring up a oh, point okay. before they leave, thinking about that sequence is that first they're thinking about leaving and then Keith gives them that prod. Well, shouldn't you at least ask Vince and they sort of do. And so he's yeah. like you said, rattling off all the stuff. And then Keith gives kind of that that affirming nod like, yeah, I understand you two just just go off and run along. And I'm like, what is there any subtext that was meant to that like oh i understand what you two are doing or just how did was there were you given any direction on what that meant in terms of how you wrote it in the script you know i don't recall specifically but i i know going back and looking at it now the way it reads to me is that keith as much as he understands the impulse 
for Daniel and Larmina to want to go off on their own and do their own thing. He recognizes the importance of the team and he knows what it's like to be left out sometimes. So he wants to make sure that they're at least making the effort to include Vince. And if, if Vince doesn't want to take that opportunity, then he's going to look at Daniel and Larmina and say, okay, you're good to go. And I think that's what that was, was him acknowledging that they'd given Vince his chance. Vince would rather stay here and he's happy to do that. And now if you guys want to go off and do your own thing, you can go off and do your own thing. But don't, don't forget you have a third team member. Okay, that I, is how I, I read it, but I was curious. Yeah, I, I hadn't read it that way, honestly. I, I kind of thought of Keith as being, because he, he's not the most sociable of a uh, member of the Voltron Force. I thought he was kind of being obtuse there, but I like that angle. Uh, I hadn't thought of it, but yeah, it, it shows uh, leadership uh, yep. in a way that he doesn't often demonstrate in this show. Uh, I, I think my one criticism of Voltron Force as a whole is that because of all the the different lions flipping around, forming the center. It gives everyone a chance to be in charge, which is cool, but it does kind of diminish Keith's role as the authority figure on the team. And True. so it's it's interesting to see that played out here. And, and I had totally missed that angle, Shannon and Adam both. So uh, thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of opportunities for other members of the Voltron force to step in and say, hey, Keith, I think this is a great time for yellow center or, but then Keith has his own ideas about that as well and I think they're all getting used to the idea that we can do these different configurations and what's the best weapon we want to use for this particular situation yeah that certainly comes into play in this episode as they're searching for the thing that's going to allow them to defeat the predator robies and they don't have it but they give everyone a, a crack at it uh, obviously, they don't know what the green line can do yet, right. but they've got the other four and they take their best shots and they come up short, which is another cool thing about the episode. That's that shadow starting to creep in. Yeah. Green line gets its own, you know, uh, big episode where it, it comes to the green configuration. That's uh, inside the music, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think... Uh, it's a good idea that they they tease it a little bit in this one and then we get it in in inside the music and then yeah. after that when we when we because later in the season we we revisit uh the predator row beast again in army of one is that the episode army of I one i don't remember the title of that one. that's Sorry. that's where there's a bunch of the lotor clones that's army of one uh, yeah yes yeah and then the Predator Robies comes back and then they do try the green configuration that time, but it's only with Vince's help that they're able to overcome. That's right. So, so, so on the subject of, uh, you know, how the teaser was uh, very, it ended on a, on, on a, you know, don't change that dial kind of a tone. Uh, the first act here ends really, really powerfully as well. Uh, Vince finds that Lotor, uh, uh, Lotor ship is entering the atmosphere. Um, the pilots go to the lions and they begin to launch and every single one of them is stuck in its den because there's one of these robies blocking it. And yep. that's the big deal at the end of the, of, of the first act. Uh, yeah, they can't some... even go get out of the garage, you know? <laughs> exactly. They've put a cork in the tunnels. And yeah. uh, they got to figure out, they can't even get on the battlefield uh, by the end of act one. They are completely uh, on defense. Um, yeah. And how do you get out of that? And that's where you want to keep your heroes at the end of an act. You want it to look like all the odds are stacked against them. 
uh, you want to get that audience to come back after the cereal commercials. <laughs> okay, so, so, you... so getting back to set up how we get to the point that we just described, we had um, Larmina and Daniel were, were leaving to go to go do their thing. And this is the point where everybody starts separating. Right. So. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, Daniel and Larmina wanting to get away and do their own thing, but wanting to get away together and do their own thing under the guise of, a, of you know, work scoping out the terrain for tactical advantage and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, it's also, it's kind of a tour of the planet, but really it's just them hanging out. That's really what they wanted to do was just hang out. And I, I think this was pretty funny what, when the lions are launching, each, each of the pilots is doing their own thing. You know, like Lance says, red lion on the prowl. And Hunk is doing like, he's, he's riffing from a song. Na, 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 na. And then Pidge is like green across the board. And then Keith's rolling his eyes and he just says, can't anyone just launch? Right. <laughs> just an effort to personalize every one of the characters. I, I don't know, I don't recall if that had been done before on the show, if they all said different things as they were launching or if they all kind of no. had the same launch pattern. But I thought... Uh, it would be fun to have them all sort of say something that was in character for them or do something that was in character for them. And, you know, writers are always looking for ways that maybe they can make an imprint on a show that maybe that would become a regular thing. Right. Right. So, so they all are acting like it's going to be a normal launch until they find out they're getting blocked by these road beasts outside of their dens. Yeah. Um, Vince is able to get uh, Daniel and Larmina back. And then they ask, okay, what can we do to help? And Alora lets them know, hey, we can handle these, these things. Just make sure you watch and, and keep the castle safe. Right. So it, it's at that point where uh, Vince sort of goes into a, a mode where uh, Daniel and Larmina haven't seen before. Yeah. I, I, you know, I had for, totally forgotten that moment uh, in the story where the wires and he plugs in. Yeah. And I thought that's an incredibly cool visual. Um, and I've got to give credit to, to Todd. I'm sure he's the one that came up with it. And Todd and the, the regular staff writers on the show. Um, I just thought that was an incredibly cool and powerful moment. You've got the, the bit earlier when Vince is doing the stuff and all the minority report screens are flashing around and they're moving things around and virtually driving the different uh, drones and whatever is out there. But Vince plugging in is a really cool moment. <laughs> and when you think just two episodes earlier, um, I reviewed Dark Blue with them. And that's all about Vince being insecure about even having a place on the team, not knowing what his power was. And here, right in front of Daniel and Armina, he goes this and all of a sudden stops. Oh, uh, did I tell you I can even do this? And they look at him, um, no. Yeah, I don't think that Vince even recognizes his own importance uh, on the team. I think he is just doing what feels natural to him when it comes to plugging in, when it comes to working with the defense systems. I don't think he is thinking about it in terms of now I'm going to prove myself. I think he's thinking about it in terms of I can do this. This is awesome. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I kind of like that motivation better than him saying to himself, I'm going to stand apart from the crowd. This is how I'm going to be unique on the team. He is just doing what he does. And it happens to be exactly what the team needs. Yeah. And I thought it was just personally thought it was natural and amazing character growth to have seen that 
and just see it from here to here. And then without a second thought, he didn't stop. He didn't stop and think about it. He just did. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole time that we're seeing the, the, the Robies keep the, the lions in their dens, you know, there's a couple of spectators from Lotor's command ship that are watching this. Yeah. And do they tell you, oh, every so often we have to go back to Lotor and Mayhawks and just see how they're responding to this? Do they tell you to, to mix those in? Probably. Um, you know, the temptation is to make it a, a continuous battle scene for, for 17 minutes. Um, but the fact is, is that you need, break, you need to cut away. You need to break away from that to build tension in the actual battle itself. And also you need to show Lotor getting a sense of the information of, of what these, these robeasts can do and how they're gonna help him down the line and how they're gonna be valuable. And you need to see his confidence building. You need to see you know, uh, Mayhox putting the plan in place and proving his own importance in this situation, but he's also got his own agenda. Mm -hmm. So there's still a lot of stuff. You don't wanna lose a character for too long in an episode because you forget they're there. So I can't tell you how many times I've gotten notes on a script saying, what about our lead character? Whatever happened to him, you know, or her? And you have to go back and say, oh, right. I suppose we should put a cutaway in there that uh, tells us what's going on with that character at this point. Because otherwise you forget. Yep. So there's, there's actually a subplot in this, which is the Daniel and Larmina thing. Yeah. So we are establishing... Uh, a sort of a, a relationship there that is different from the other cadet relationships. And there's, there's a question about a picture at the end, <laughs> but we'll, we'll get there. But I'm just okay. saying uh, the, they, they established this by saying, we're gonna use this DigiPix camera thing and it'll take pictures of us while we're out doing our thing on our, on our vehicles. Right. Pictures of the terrain for tactical purposes <laughs> or pictures of famous tourism sites. Uh, right. You know, it, it's just it's an activity for them to do together. Um, and uh, I think some of it is is fun. I think there's there's one scene that ends with kind of a held shot and you hear Larmina pointing out a, a particular site within that shot and then you hear the camera click. Yeah, I think that's in the that's, script, at least. That's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think that's fun. You know, it's like, oh, oh, yeah, well, okay, I guess I can get a picture of that <laughs> and then move <laughs> so, on to the next thing. So it wasn't subject, a picture of anything meaningful, I don't think. Yeah. But on the subject of the, the DigiPix uh, yeah. and the minority report style screens, one thing that's always kind of fun to do years after the fact is to look back at the future tech. <laughs> that a sci-fi production brings to the table and yeah. think about it from a, a, a now, you know, the contemporary perspective, sure. you know, thinking back to Star Trek in the sixties and the computer working, you know, when they would talk to the computer and you'd hear all the mechanical computer sounds in the background yeah. um, in this show, you know, the minority report stuff has been around for a while, even yeah. by the time of Ultron force, but it still has a very futuristic vibe. I would say to this day, um, you know, the, the whole touch screens and, and things manipulated by, by moving your arms and stuff around and haptic feedback and all that great stuff. The mm -hmm. DigiPix is very recognizable. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's a little it's very, dated. Yeah, a little yeah. Dated. But, but it works. I mean, it, it, is, a, it is certainly, a, and, you know, even at this point, uh, smartphones were not nearly as ubiquitous as they are today with all the 
it, yeah, with all that. So it was a. Yeah, future... I'm thinking in that time period, I was I still had a personal and a professional BlackBerry. Yeah. Um, that's hey, most people go. didn't have in the smartphones, like you said, not common. I was going to say it's it's the future version of the GoPro, right? Yes. Nice. Uh, I like that. Go. Yeah, it's the, uh, the um, flash form GoPro. Yes. Yeah, we didn't we didn't look too far in the future when it came to the Digipix, as it turns out. Uh, as far as the haptic stuff and the Minority Report, that's just a great visual, and I think oh, yeah. that plays that plays just about any time under any situation in an animated series. And, and uh, it's the, more visually interesting, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I think so. Than yeah. just having people punching random buttons here and there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Imagine you know we have these drones today you know, that can yeah. fly around and take pictures of everything and gives us good video and good pictures. But the if you combine that with a GoPro and you say, okay, it's only going to take pictures of, of us while we're in action, you know, how does it know how to do that? You know, all that kind of stuff. It's not being manually controlled by anybody. You know, it's not being remotely controlled. It just knows these are the ones I have to focus on. You know who could tell you how that works is Vince. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Probably. You have to get him on the show. That's true. We did have uh, several Bell. members of the Voltron Force cast. Yes. Oh, terrific. Doran Bell Jr. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, while Vince is plugged into the Castle Defenses, uh, Daniel and Armina decide, hey, there's things we can do to help. So yeah. they actually take their two vehicles that they had built and they go out on the terrain and they go after, you know, some of these things and they decide to start with Hunk because he's the one who actually knows about those vehicles. Right. <laughs> and so in order to try to get Hunk to get out of his den, they have to go after the snake. Right. So they actually attack it. Yeah, there's a little bit of a, a distraction uh, uh, effort underway there to try and get the snake to turn its attention away from the opening of the dents that Hunk can get out. So it's less an attack that they expect is gonna defeat the snake than it is meant to just draw its, its attention away. It's a pretty good tactic. Yeah. yeah, and in the process, both of your vehicles sort of get uh, uh, dismantled. <laughs> Munched, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and they end up do, they did have enough time for, for Hunk to get out and then Hunk is able to open up its jaws and let them in and then they get away. Yeah, it's, I think it's always fun to see a lot of characters crammed into a really tiny space. Uh, <laughs> I think there's some, some good comedic value to that, to them sort of being cramped in around Hunk. Um, Especially when there's only a seat for one. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, make sure there's like two, but, but yeah. Do they, yeah. they have a cadet backseat in the uh, the lions that don't normally have cadets in them? I don't remember. I think they do. Yeah. But but anyway, it's a two seater. They got yeah four <laughs> people in there. So yeah, I, one of the things that's fun about the uh, this show in particular is that it's, it seems to be the first one that introduced uh, the characters getting in and out of the lions through their mouths. Mm. Um, I don't believe that that ever happened in Defender of the Universe or the Third Dimension. They I think they had the hatches in the the tops of the heads was typically how they would get yeah. in and out when they were in the field. Um, so it's kind of fun to see. It almost looks like the lions are eating their occupants. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and I think uh, Legendary Defender, of course, uh, carried that on in their show as well. That um, may have been a, a practical decision uh, for this particular series in that maybe the lions weren't designed by the character designers uh, to have a hatch. I don't know. 
if they did or not. But but uh, it may just have come out of necessity. How are we going to get the characters inside the lion? Well, we know this is one way, <laughs> so let's let's take it. Um, so it may just have come out of necessity. Right. It looks it looks great too. Yeah. <laughs> so at this point in the story, Hunk is the only uh, lion that's out of its den. And Vince is in the process of helping Keith try to get out of the castle. Mm -hmm. And Vince is able to do a couple things and then eventually it works and, and Keith is free. So the first thing that, that Hunk wants to go out and help is Pidge. And the first person that Keith wants to go out and help is Alora. <laughs> Really? <laughs> what, a, what a surprise. So, so Lance is feeling a little bit left out at this point. Also, what a surprise. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's one line in particular that I really liked of, of Lance's. And that's where he says, uh, I'm going to be reassessing my relationship with all of you. <laughs> so, yeah. Poor Lance. He's on the outside looking in, but at least he's got a sense of humor about it. Um, I gotta say the Lance stuff is my favorite stuff in the whole episode. I just love the mm -hmm. fact that every time he sticks his head out of the den, he gets kicked in the head and it goes falling back into it again. It's like the, the Minotaur is playing uh, whack-a-mole uh -huh. with him and there's no other way to deal with it. And Keith just can't do anything right. He's just like, all right, now I'm gonna try and ow. Now I'm gonna try and get ow. And it just happens over and over and over again until the team comes to help. So do you remember if this, if it was your idea to have Lance be the one who's dealing with the big bad uh, at this point? Or, you know, because typically in the Voltron shows, the Black Lion has been the toughest one and, and, and all that stuff. Um, do you remember if that was a suggestion from Todd or is this something you had come up with yourself? I'm curious. I'm pretty sure I did not come up with it myself. It must have come from Todd. Uh, but I know it was just a matter of matching the lions against the, the Robies that were thematically closest to them. Uh, that made the most sense to see a cool fight. Well, my, my thoughts on that, Greg, is if we watch the episodes up to this point, there's kind of been this ongoing tension between Alora and Keith and Lance. And since we since the series kind of ended as cold as it did there's for me always been kind of this question of what happened during those five years because i go back to thinking about the first thing lance says about you know how he would have been chivalrous and come to her rescue first but i kind of have this this thing keeping me down here there's been several other instances up to this point in the way that he's responded to Alora in particular adam i don't know were you given any direction on how those three were supposed to interact with each other? Or was that kept, I mean, this is hard because I haven't heard anything and I've, and I've personally wondered, but. Well, I think there was always an underlying thread of competition between Keith and Lance. And uh, that applied to, you know, physical activity on the team and it applied to relationship with others. And I think we wanted to keep it probably as subtle as possible, uh, but still hint that it was there. And that if, you know, if, Keith and Allura were together, then Lance would probably have a thought on it. And if Lance and Allura were together, Keith would probably have a thought on it. And if Keith and Lance were together, I don't know how that would work, but exactly, maybe Allura would have a thought on it. I don't know. I found her the toughest character to write. Um, oh, uh, I really did. 
Yeah. Um, I, I wasn't sure uh, what her perspective was on everything that was going on around her. She seemed a, a fairly straightforward, straight ahead kind of character. There wasn't a whole lot of subtlety in this episode for her to play with. There wasn't a whole lot of chance to focus on her character-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that if I had the chance to, to go back into the script and work on it some more, I would try and find more ways to bring out her personality in the episode because I feel like she kind of got the short shift. Yeah. Uh, interesting. And, th- and, and thank you for that. The, the, the reason I had kind of wondered mechanic-wise is with the five years in between is from the setup that we had, Keith largely seemed to be the one on the run away from the den, presumably for a period of time, while Lance was the main contact between Eris and the den. And so I'm like, hmm, that probably did change the dynamics somewhat. So, mm. you know, it's, it's one of those things that would have been interesting to see how it played out, but yeah. obviously we're not, that's not going to happen. Maybe someday. You never know. That's true. <laughs> Voltron has a way of coming back. Yeah. Also yeah, true. It <laughs> yeah, it does. Thankfully. All right. So um, at this point, uh, all the lions are out of the dens now because they have, they were actually able to help all, all four. It took all four lions to get after the Minotaur to, to be able to get Lance out. But at this point now, we have the five animal robies going up against the five lions. And it's kind of suspenseful, right? You don't know what's gonna happen next. You know, they had a hard enough time getting out of their dens. How are they going to do in mano a mano combat where there's one enemy for each of them and there's not really the opportunity to team up two on one, three on one, whatever, uh, until the the actual coming together of Voltron and the Predator Robies coming together as well. So in a one-on-one battle, you know, their chances aren't good. And I think they know that. They realize that pretty quick. And and the the really powerful vi- visual that we get right at the end of Act Two is this thing coming together and forming a giant robeast, a combined robeast Voltron style. Yeah. Now, did they say to you? When when we do this, did they did they mention how that was going to happen from a visual perspective, and and did did any of this help you in in writing it or, like I I don't know because, you know Voltron has its own combining sequence you know right. and it has its own music and everything, right? Did did I'm, they I'm say sure. that this was going to be really menacing or something or what? I'm sure they did. I'm sure, I'm sure Todd said that. We want it to be the evil version of what Voltron does. And we had the Voltron model. It was just a matter of tweaking that coming together sequence in a way that was distinct for the villains and uh, was just as cool, but at the same time made you go, oh crap, this is going to be really, really tough to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't think I had an idea of what it was going to look like specifically visually. I knew it was going to be along the lines of the Voltron combination. I think it's interesting that they chose, uh, I assume Todd had a part in this, to uh, to flash form Voltron and then have Daniel say, oh, this is so cool. And then the, the, the Robies come together in a traditional Voltron style. I, I almost wonder if it, if it, how it would have played if the Lions had formed in a more traditional way 
mm. followed immediately by the row beasts forming in in the same way you know in in their in their evil fashion you know to yeah. sort of to show that parallel a little more but but yeah. uh, i do i do think that the flash form thing punched up it kind of it kind of gave it give the give the scene a bit of a of levity before the oh crap moment when the uh when the yeah. giant row base just formed. <laughs> there's an there's an air of anything you can do i can do better yes. uh and uh that adds to the tension and also like you said adds a little bit of levity to it as well it's got an answer for everything <laughs> so the the first thing that we see is keith respond by saying that thing might be as big as voltron but there's only one voltron Right, you know, so there's there's your leader saying, "Hey, we're Voltron, remember?" You know, right. <laughs> so uh, he tells Daniel, and and Daniel does the flash form go, and they form Voltron. And then um, the first thing that they do, uh, uh, Pitch says they're detecting heat seekers. So Keith says, "Let's form Red Center." And they form red center, and then Lance says, "Draw the magma pistols." But it's it's not very effective, is it? No, <laughs> no. They're they're it's about as effective as trying to get out of the deck. Right. And Voltron gets gets basically thrown back. Yeah. So then, <laughs> uh, you know, Pidge realizes just how much power this thing has, and. Alora comes back with a confident tone saying, but we've still got a few powers that Ropeast hasn't seen yet, right? right. And it's, it's at that point that Keith takes that cue and he says, okay, let's form Blue Center. They're in the water. So then they form the Titanic Trident and then the Ropeast is in the water and they decide they're gonna to try to freeze it. Right. But that doesn't last very long either, does it? <laughs> it, it doesn't. Um, you know, again, the, the Predator Robies is kind of a different category enemy for Voltron. It's kind of a new, it's a new thing. And uh, uh, it has, seems to have an answer for everything. But what the good guys have to do is run down the list of what they've got weapon-wise and see if any of these things are going to work. I imagine they probably are thinking to themselves, if that didn't work, this probably won't work either, but we've got to try it just in case. And so they're running through their checklist of the of the usual standard attacks before they realize they got to try something different out of right. the box. So what ends up happening is, is the the snakes, uh, the snake, sort of stings it. Yeah. And then Keith says we're infected with that thing's venom. So now they can't even like really move. Right. It shuts down all the systems. Right. And then it just picks Voltron up, takes it up into the air, and then throws it down. And there's nothing they can do. They can't get their systems back up. And Voltron just slams into the ground. In a Voltron-shaped hole. Yes. <laughs> For some reason, Greg is now in the bottom right. I don't know how this happened. <laughs> weird i wanted to form uh form something center that was different we, than before uh, <laughs> order of joining that's there we go greg got a taste of the snake venom too so we had to change our configuration <laughs> to try to combat it 
just think, Adam, all those years ago, if you'd known that 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 on on our little podcast here, uh, your episode would get referenced here. Uh, just amazing. Well, it's funny. We were actually <laughs> just talking about that while you were while you were trying to get back in. I was mentioning that no one has ever talked to me about Voltron before. I have never really? been approached at a convention, never gotten an email. Uh, mm-hmm. Nobody has ever um, mentioned Voltron to me. Uh, and I wow. had not forgotten about it, but it was definitely on a back burner for me as far as memories of, of shows that I've worked on. Oh, wow. wow, that is so cool. That makes yeah. me even happier that I reached out to you. And yes. from, from my perspective, as, as these guys know my whole story, if it wasn't for Voltron, I wouldn't have become an animation professional at all. So yeah. that makes it all the more surreal. It's fun yeah. to talk about. It really is. I think there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that fans want to know about. Uh, there's a lot of uh, mechanical stuff that that fans who want to be writers want to know about. Um, and it's always fun to talk about it. It's, it's fun to relive it as well. So that's that's totally cool. And now we're going to get back into the, the episode. Sure. So after this word from our sponsors. Yes. <laughs> so the, the one thing in here that is mentioned, and I think it's pretty important part of this whole plot here, is the fact that we go back to Mayhox and Lotor. And Lotor mentions about how entertaining this is. And then Mayhox says, oh, imagine how powerful this Robis would be if it had actual more Hagarium, which he's been trying to get. Mm-hmm. And what we're realizing is, is this isn't even the most powerful this Robies can be yet. And it's still kicking Voltron, Voltron's butt. Yep. Storm clouds are most definitely gathering. Yeah. <laughs> so um, they eventually do get their systems up just in enough time for them to form Yellow Center and hunk to rock those wrecking maces. And they're able to knock the, the Robies back after it, it, it tries to attack them. But again, they, they go after it and they get knocked back again. Mm-hmm. And this time they, they switch over to form Black Center again and they form Blazing Sword and then they try to attack it with Blazing Sword. But then something happens and, and Keith says, Blazing Sword just broke? How can that happen? Yeah, that's uh, the ultimate weapon for the for Voltron to this point. So, yeah. Yeah, so, as they say in Jaws, you're going to need a new ultimate weapon. <laughs> is there a better weapon for Voltron than Blazing Sword? Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to need something. I mean, they, they landed exactly one punch in the fight with the maces. And that didn't do a whole lot. They're going to have to completely rethink their tactics, uh, rethink their their armament, and maybe rethink their configurations. I mean, you do have Alora saying, how can Arobis be more powerful than Voltron? They're actually contemplating the fact that, that Voltron's not the most powerful thing out there. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a rude awakening. Yeah. But... They, they said, we haven't tried the green configuration yet, and they can't because they don't have Vince, but they're thinking now, maybe if we try to trap this thing in the lava and form Red Center, uh, maybe if we form Red Center, Voltron will survive it, but that Robis won't. 
Right. But then they get in there and something strange happens. All of a sudden you see all these coffins come in. Well, they're not really coffins, are they? What are they, Greg? They're, are they coffins? They're, they're called coffins in this show. Okay. Like, uh, I, I, in the original show, yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to make yeah. sure we're still calling them coffins. Yes, yes. But all of a sudden these coffins come in and, and pick up all these, all these ropies after it splits apart. And then they're gone. everybody's dumbfounded. What just happened? <laughs> That's uh, Lotor showing his sadistic side. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I know that I can beat you. I know that I can take you apart at my leisure. I'm going to wait till the time is right. And you just sit there and think about it for a while. I was thinking of uh, Ivan Drago from Rocky IV. I will crush you. <laughs> I must break you. I must break you. Yeah. That's what it was. Sorry. <laughs> yes. Yeah. From a writing perspective, I totally liked this because Voltron so much, whether it's the original show or even Voltron Force, there's always this formula of build up to the big bad, defeat the big bad. And this took that whole thing and just flipped it completely. Yep. I mean, you must have felt pretty good being the writer of, of an episode where Voltron gets beaten. Yeah. And they don't know what to do. It's definitely fun. And it's definitely out of formula for a lot of a lot of the kinds of shows that, that I've worked on, to have the character defeated at the end. There's no happy ending here. There's no sense of triumph. There's very little window of possibility that they could have done something other than what they did to, to win the day. Um, it looks pretty hopeless right now. And indeed, all they can do is sit and think about it uh, and try and come up with something based on what little they know about this thing. Lotor's got all the cards now. Right. Now, Lotor does mention in a, a sort of selfish way that he doesn't want a bunch of animals defeating Voltron. He wants to do it himself. Right. But he really needs this robust. <laughs> I think he sees the possibilities. Uh, you know, he's got the bias against the animals, uh, but I think that his larger goal is what's most important to him. And he's going to take advantage of what the predator robust gives him that he hasn't had before which is all this incredible power I, I do i do like how this episode does kind of lay down the groundwork for what happens much later in the season after crossed signals even um when you know lotor wants to defeat voltron and gee if this predator robies only had a lot more hegarium uh it would be a lot more powerful At, near the very end of the season lotor becomes a hegarium powered robeast and uh there's a pretty big fight there in the uh in one of the very last episodes so yeah. uh, it's kind of fun that this one lays down groundwork for things yet to come yeah that's i mean in a in a continuity based series you're always looking for places to do that to lay the hints and lay them in a way that you're not saying out loud i'm laying a hint you want to <laughs> it's got to be there when people go back to look for it yeah yeah so the, the way this ends of course they're still out there in the desert. So Vince comes by on his tank machine that he built and he wants to pick them up. So they all go back together. And at, at some point, Keith says, hey, where'd Vince get that tank? Right? So, so the Voltron Force members are starting to learn that maybe the, the 
the cadets have been doing something on their own. Right. And then at the same time, uh, Daniel takes a look at some of those pictures that they got from the digipix. And he notices the last one is, is just a nice pic of Daniel looking heroic. And, and he says, so uh, what are your purposes for that last picture? And Larmina says, oh, that shot of you? My finger must have slipped. <laughs> Seemed like a pretty clear pick. <laughs> well, you know, these things happen. Yeah. Uh, and the, uh, the Digipix has a very uh, 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 advanced lens so that even the bad pictures that you take when your finger slips come out really, really well. It's future technology. Right. Right. Exactly. I wish we had some of that now. Right. right? If only. I still get blurry pictures. <laughs> now I, I can only now I'm I'm coming at this from a male perspective, but but and, and Shannon, please, I, I'd like to hear your take on this as well. Um, I like that there is uh, a sense of uh, you know Daniel and Larmina liking each other, but I like that at least as far as I can see it, it seems like they're coming at it as equals in every way, shape, and form. I think that's pretty cool. It's it's not where one character is is pushing themselves on another character, you know. It, it it's it seems to be a mutual sense of respect and 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 admiration uh, admiration for each other. Yeah. What, what do what do you what do you all think, Shannon? First, what do you, what are your sure? Thoughts? Um, that is pretty much how it's been reading for me um, when I've when I sat through this, and not just the episode but the series as a whole. Part of that has to do with the fact between our three cadets, Vince has no interest in being part of a triangle or, or a group, like going back to the original series where all the guys were chasing after Alora. So it, <laughs> it kind of lends itself to being that unique dynamic and just the two of them naturally growing together. And looking at what happened by the end of the series, again, that's one of those things that would have been interesting to see now that, they've, that they grow together the way they did, how would that have affected that dynamic for Larmina and how would that have changed things for her for the shorter long-term? But I do think Greg's observation is correct. Cool. Well, you're setting the stage for the next generation, right? And yep. you want the next generation to have different kinds of relationships from the previous generation. And having Daniel and Larmina respect each other and genuinely enjoy each other's company uh, and find shared activities that they can enjoy together. It's a little different from what we've seen from the original team. Um, there's not really a relationship that's quite like that. And the romantic stuff, it, romantic? The romantic stuff is peeking through just a little bit. But right now it's, it's hanging out with your best pal. Right, mm -hmm. right. So, so we're, we're left at, at the end of this episode. And I remember watching this when this came out, okay? Because we used to be able to converse with Jeremy Corey on Twitter because he was running the Twitter account for Voltron at the time. And, you know, you can talk to the producers during the show while it's airing on Twitter. It was really cool. Yeah. And everybody's reaction at the end of that show, what? Voltron didn't win? <laughs> How is this possible? Nope. Yeah. You got to shake up the status quo once in a while. Uh, you know, if every episode has familiar beats and ends in exactly the same way, then you're not uh, 
You're not uh, uh, giving the the audience everything you can be giving them. Yeah. Uh, so you gotta you gotta pull the rug out every once in a while. Yep. Every, everybody's so used to seeing low tour at the end, run away with his tail between his legs. <laughs> mm-hmm. And here in this one, he runs away with the weapon of destruction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and one, th- one thing that's also interesting is that this episode is on the heels of an episode called Wanted and Unwanted, which barely featured the lions or Voltron. So, you know, you, you had a Voltron light episode where, you know, Voltron was probably, you know, guest starring on another show or something. <laughs> <laughs> and then it comes back in a big way in this episode and gets its robot handed to it. So, yeah, uh, that's kind of cool. I'm sure that was part of Todd's uh, intention all along with the season was to deliver a Voltron that was different from any previous Voltron and deliver it in a way that hadn't been done before with this property. Um, and I think that he made a lot of fans sit up and take notice. I mean, a lot of credit to him, you know, and a lot of credit to the staff writers that were there as well. And, and we got to see the four configurations. We went, we went through black and yellow and red and blue and saw all the different weapons, yeah. which was really cool to see yeah. them happen all during one battle there's a lot of information in this episode and there are a lot of characters in this episode and it's really really hard to service all of your characters when you have this many in a 22 minute episode it's a constant challenge and we were talking earlier about how you can't lose a character for too long because you forget that they're there that's a real challenge during an episode like this because you've got to be jumping around and you've got to see all those characters and know what they're up to and you've got to have a picture in your head of where they are in relation to each other and um, what each one is doing at a particular time. It's, it's a juggling act. It really is. Yeah. Actually, Adam, what you yeah. just made me think of there is we were talking earlier about how in writing series, you know, going back a number of years to when you and I were both earlier in our careers, how they didn't tend to do as much continuity because there needed to always be jump on points in a right. way though, this one also serves as somebody like heard the word about the show later mm-hmm. and comes and discovers this one. The idea that this Voltron has the ability to change centers. It's sort of like, here's your catch up episode. You get to see them all demonstrated at once. Okay. Right. You're caught up now. And yet That's it true. wasn't a stand. It wasn't that standalone purpose. And yet it accomplished that. It does. It, there's, it doesn't, ex- you see a lot of that. You don't get a lot of explanation for it in this particular right. episode. So hopefully what it makes you want to do is go back and find those first 10 episodes and get all of that backstory. So you know why Voltron is able to do the things it does now and what the, you know, what the players on the chessboard are doing. Yeah. And, and, and to, to add to uh, what Shannon said, I, I also like the fact that if this were a jumping on point, you know, a jump on point for the show, you see Voltron getting, uh, getting, you know, getting its, uh, get itself, uh, you know, wiped out here, uh, defeated effectively. Uh, if you had watched any of the prior Voltron shows, and this is your first episode of Voltron Force, I mean, this is this is definitely a, a new a new twist on 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 an older concept, which is really interesting too. So it's yeah. it's kind of a good jump on point from that perspective as well. As much as I enjoyed the original, the previous series of Voltron. I think the reason I didn't hold it in as high regard as I did Battle of the Planets or Robotech is because it was a little formulaic. Mm -hmm. And you knew that Voltron was going to triumph at the end. And like you say, that Lotor was going to run away with his tail between his legs or whatever. And this was different. 
And it's always fun to take an established formula and turn it upside down and see how people react to it. Uh, it makes it a much more interesting show as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Well, I have to say it was one of my favorite episodes of all of Voltron Force. So thank you, Adam. I'm glad you liked it. And again, all credit to Todd as well. So uh, we we like to, every time we have somebody on, we always like to, at the end, uh, give them an opportunity to talk about things you're currently working on and maybe even want to talk about if you can. Well, the last thing I worked on that has come out was Lego Jurassic World, uh, which was a lot of fun. We did what is called two seasons, but it's really 13 episodes and then a two-part movie. Uh, and that was great fun. It was so much fun to play in the Lego universe and so much fun to play in the Jurassic World universe. Uh, I hope people you know, seek that out and find it because we had a great time working on that show. The stuff that I've been doing since uh, uh, hasn't been announced yet. Uh, so I can't really talk about it. Um, okay. But uh, there are some fun possibilities coming up that I'm really excited about, hoping that I get. Uh, and then the last show that I worked on um, is also going to be pretty darn cool as well. So the, the incredible run of good fortune continues. Oh, we're so happy for you. Thank you. How about, in, how about in the comic world? You know, I haven't written any comics for a couple of years. Oh, um, apologies. I, I was not aware. Oh, no, that's okay. Um, DC has, uh, has you know, they, they have different generations of writers come in every so often. And not a lot of the writers that I was working with when I was there are still there. Uh, they've gone on to other things, other comics or other projects. Uh, and I've been busy with the television stuff um, and happily so. Mm -hmm. That said, I may or may not be working on an idea for a new graphic novel that's original material. Um, that's sort of in the early stages of, of research and development. Uh, but uh, there may be some new comic book work coming in the future. That's exciting. Adam, question for you. For those yes. people who may be less familiar with your comic book work, which includes yours truly, <laughs> Backlist-wise, what would be things to try to look out for? Things that, that you're, I don't more necessarily want to say most proud of, but... Sure. DC has recently collected um, the stories I wrote for their Justice League Unlimited comic book uh, in smaller, uh, well, I just happen to have one right here, in books <laughs> like these, digest-sized books. Oh, okay. Oh. And uh, if you find these books in your comic shop, chances are one or two of them may have a story in there for me. Uh, those are the most recently reprinted stuff, but uh, I would advise people to seek out um, the collected uh, Paul Dini Zatanna, uh, mm -hmm. which uh, I, I wrote two or three stories in. I was lucky enough to fill in for Paul a couple of times, uh, but you're going to get a really good book full of Paul Dini comic book scripts if you pick that up. And I think that uh, the, this whole series is a lot of fun. So I would look for those. Okay, thanks. Yeah, you bet. Cool. And are you on social media? I am indeed. I am, uh, I am uh, at S-O-N-N-O-V-A on Twitter. Uh, and if you, uh, if you say that together with my last name, you get the joke. It's son of a beachin. Um, <laughs> so uh, you can find me there. Uh, you can find me on Facebook if you like. Uh, I'm around. Okay, great. That's great. Adam, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, maybe we can uh, pick your brain uh, when we get around to reviewing your other episode, if you like. I would love to talk cross signals with you guys. All right. That'd be a lot and, of fun. Thanks for having me. And I want to thank Shannon for introducing us to Adam. Thank you, Shannon. 
Thank you for letting me be here today. Good to see you, Jim. Likewise. Yeah, it's great. Always great to have you on. And we'll see you all next time on Let's Let's Voltron. Voltron. Let's go. Let's go.